If you think you know where your food comes from, you probably don't. If you think you know what authenticity in cuisine is, you most likely do not. And if you think you can be the cultural appropriation police when so-and-so cooks such-and-such, well, you can't. Am I going to get canceled for this episode? Maybe. Does it help that I'm not just another white guy? Hopefully. But no matter my ethnicity, Iran number one, Iran number one. On this week's episode of History Bites, I am here to defend the food fusers, the culinary collaborators, and the ethnic cuisine concoctors. I'm giving a free pass to colonization and empire building. Yeah, no, I'm totally getting canceled. Because without these things, all of these things, our food would taste awful. There's a reason nobody talks about the cuisine of Antarctica. Not enough raping and pillaging on those icebergs. Through colonization, war, and exploration, the world food map exploded in so many wonderful ways. And as we explored in the war episode, the silver lining to killing millions of people is food. Yay, war! So before we get all high and mighty about what's authentic and what's not, let's take a nice long look at where your food really comes from and prove once and for all that there's really no such thing as food authenticity and that we should just celebrate things simply because they taste good. What a concept. Let's start with the mother of all the world's foods, China. China is responsible for some of your favorite dishes that you definitely didn't know had Chinese origins. For starters, China can take credit for noodles. It's now widely understood that noodles were first made in China and through trade along the Silk Road made its way to Italy. Marco! I'm assuming you yelled polo alone in your car and people are looking at you strange. Good job. But China's noodles also went east. In fact, ramen wouldn't exist without China, and it's even a Chinese word. Ramen is the Japanese version of la mian, which means noodles in Chinese. If you listen to the war episode we did, you'll know that ramen only became a staple of the Japanese diet after World War II when there was a terrible rice harvest and the U.S. started shipping massive amounts of wheat to the country to help feed the poor. Long story short, the Yakuza took over the wheat trade, small ramen shops popped up, and a national diet was changed overnight. Unrelated but totally related, did you know the kiwi, the national fruit of New Zealand, isn't from New Zealand? Nope, it's Chinese. A New Zealand missionary brought them back at the beginning of the 19th century. <laughs> Losers. That would be like Americans realizing the apples in our apple pies weren't native. What's that? Apples are from Central Asia? Cool, so apple pie is less American and more Kazakhstani? Okay, let's change the subject. How about sushi? That's right, sushi's origins are Chinese. A dish called narazushi, which was salted fish wrapped in fermented rice, dates to the second century BCE. The fermented rice was actually used to preserve the fish and then thrown out before eating the fish. Sushi didn't come to Japan until the 8th century CE. <laughs> Losers. That would be like Americans realizing hot dogs and hamburgers are actually... God damn it. Then there's ketchup. Not only is it Chinese, but it didn't have tomatoes in it. It was a fermented fish sauce. The Brits got a hold of the stuff in the 1700s and started using it on everything. Tomatoes weren't added until 1812 in America. So ketchup is Chinese, British, Peruvian, and American. It's the condiment equivalent of a gangbang. Feel free to use that in your advertising, Heinz. What about churros? Mexican, right? Wrong. The churro didn't get to Mexico until the Spanish Inquisition. It was brought back to the Iberian Peninsula by Portuguese traders who loved the Chinese yotiao. Churros were introduced to South America via Spanish exploration, and around the same time, chocolate was being shipped back to the continent from South American countries. Churros for chocolate? Never has there been more fair a trade. You know what's not Chinese? The fortune cookie. 
Now, there were competing claims to the invention from Japanese Americans and Chinese Americans. This dispute was actually settled in 1983 when a federal judge decreed that Japanese immigrant Makoto Hagiwara first started serving them in San Francisco in the early 1900s. Before we get to how the Chinese took over the fortune cookie business, it's important to know the actual cookie's origins are outside of Kyoto, where Japanese crackers called Tsujiuru Senbai are filled with lines of poetry and flavored with sesame and miso. The reason we associate the fortune cookie with Chinese food is because when the Japanese were interned during World War II, Chinese bakers stepped in and took over the trade. The Chinese were like, we gave you sushi and ramen, it's payback time. And guess how much credit we're going to give you for it? Your lucky number is zero. Then, in 1960, a Chinese-American named Edward Louie, owner of the Lotus Fortune Cookie Company in San Francisco, invented a machine that could insert the fortune into the cookie, which helped them mass-produce the cookies to the tune of 90,000 a day. From that moment on, an endless supply of fortunes were inserted into cookies and passed out at Chinese restaurants all over the world. But China isn't just an exporter of food customs and culture. The Chinese have the Portuguese and Spanish to thank for peanuts, potatoes, corn, and tomatoes, which of course all came from South America during the age of exploration. And if you've ever had Kung Pao chicken, you can credit the Europeans for the crunchy, spicy peanuts. Leaving China, let's take a look at Italy, which might be the biggest beneficiary of cross-culinary pollination. Tomatoes come from Peru. Noodles come from China. Bread comes from Egypt. Olive oil comes from Greece and Persia. Cheese comes from Poland and Croatia. And garlic comes from Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan, definitely the sleeper hit of this episode. And if you go to Sicily, you will find one of the biggest culinary melting pots in the world. There are Greek, Spanish, Arab, and Jewish influences all over. The Greeks colonized Sicily in 734 BCE and introduced grapes, figs, pomegranates, wheat, walnut, and hazelnuts. They also planted olive trees and vineyards. That's right, without Greece, we have no wine, no Nutella, no olive oil, and no Pecorino cheese. The Arabs conquered Sicily in 800 CE and brought a bunch of great stuff with them, like rice, sugarcane, pistachios, dates, bananas, saffron, cinnamon, cloves, sesame, couscous, marzipan, coffee, and citrus. Without the Arab invasion, we have no cannolis or espresso. Let's move to the 1400s, where the Jews were making some of Sicily's most salacious street food until the Spanish Inquisition kicked them out. Sicily was Spanish at this time, not Italian or Arab. It's like the Alsace-Lorraine of the Mediterranean. If you don't get that, Alsace-Lorraine is an area bordering France and Germany that kept changing hands between the countries during centuries of war. Now it's French, but there's sauerkraut aplenty. And even the wines in a country that ranks their wines above all resemble German Rieslings. Alsace, where people live like the French but are on time like the Germans. I think that's paradise. After the Jews fled Sicily, they went north to Rome and brought tomatoes, peppers, and potatoes with them. That's right, if it wasn't for Jewish persecution, there would be no tomatoes in Italian cuisine. And you thought the Inquisition was all bad. I, I'm Jewish, I can sort of say that, I think. While the Spanish were being anti-Semitic, they were also introducing a lot of new products into Sicily. Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés was the first to introduce tomatoes to Europe when he brought a small yellow tomato back after he captured the Aztec city of Tenochtitlan, which is now Mexico City, in 1521. Remember the churros from four minutes ago? Cortés is also responsible for bringing them to Mexico. The Spaniards also brought back chocolate. In fact, confectioners in Modica, a city in Sicily that is famous for its chocolate, still uses ancient Aztec chocolate recipes to this day. Thank you. 
How about we take a trip to France? French food is widely considered to be one of the best cuisines in the world. But without culinary appropriation, the French would be left with one pot cooking of root vegetables from the countryside. More on that in a minute. Do you want proof? Well, without the Ottoman Empire, you don't have coffee. Without the Italians, you don't have forks. That's right, the French were once snobbish about fork use and thought using their hands was way more civilized. We associate the French with butter, but butter was first churned in Africa in like 8,000 BC and wasn't really a feature of French cooking until the Enlightenment. Wine came to France when the Greeks colonized southern Gaul. Even the croissant isn't French. Another plug for the war episode where we explain the croissant's Austrian origins. But if you want a great French culinary appropriation story, let's talk about the beloved and famous banh mi sandwich. When the French took over Vietnam in the late 19th century, it was pretty taboo to mix cultures. The French aristocratic colonists didn't eat Vietnamese food and the Vietnamese couldn't afford French food. In fact, at the time, there was a basic sentiment that the French diet of meat and bread was superior to rice and fish. And that's what kept the French strong and the Vietnamese weak. Pretty racist, but it was the 19th century and racism was all the rage, baby. In 1914, the two biggest import companies in Vietnam were actually German-owned, and when World War I broke out, the French colonial troops seized the German-owned warehouses, which were filled with European goods. Then, French troops started returning to Europe to the war effort, leaving thousands and thousands of unsold European products that would have spoiled if they didn't hit the Vietnamese markets at cheap prices. This meant that Vietnamese locals could finally afford things like bread and deli meats and beer and cheeses. Slowly, sandwiches began to be a staple of the Vietnamese diet and the banh mi sandwich began to take shape. To make it more affordable, Vietnamese chefs started making the baguettes smaller and reduced the amount of meat and added vegetables instead. Butter, which is notoriously tough to deal with in the humid climate, was slowly replaced by mayo. And in 1958, the first real Vietnam sandwich shop, Hao Ma, was open and other vendors started to copy the sandwich and put their own spins on it, adding different herbs, vegetables, or pickles. And then finally, you can thank the Vietnam War for spreading the word of the sandwich around the globe. Today, the typical banh mi sandwich is pretty different than its more humble beginnings and has a fusion of meats and veggies like pork sausage, cilantro, cucumber, pickled carrots, and pickled daikon, along with pate, red chili, and mayo. Definitely has my vote for the craziest, most delicious fusion food out there. Let's talk about McDonald's for a minute. Not just because I'm trying to get them to be a sponsor. The world's greatest culinary appropriator has a lot to tell us about appropriating food. If you're a fan of shameless capitalism and exploiting a local culture's food for profit, then you will love what McDonald's has done around the world. India has vegetarian McDonald's. Hawaii's Mickey D's has spam eggs and rice. In Italy, there's a sweetie con Nutella, which is just a bun with Nutella. In Canada, they have poutine. In Japan, there's a matcha Oreo flurry. South Korean McDonald's has churros. That, I don't know why. In Spain, there's a patatas deluxe. In Brazil, there's a pau de queijo, which is cheesy bread, AKA crack cocaine. You must try it, it's amazing. There are black and white burgers in Hong Kong. In Indonesia, there's a panaz special. Israel has a kosher McDonald's. And in the UK, there's a Cadbury cream egg McFlurry. Da 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 da, we're appropriating it. Okay, enough fast food. Let's discuss a cuisine McDonald's hasn't yet pimped out. One of my favorites, Cajun food. Anyone who's been to New Orleans is familiar with the spicy treats of Cajun cooking. But what you may not realize is that the French influences in Cajun food come from France via Canada. Now, if you've heard of the Seven Year War where Great Britain and Prussia defeated France and Spain, 
you know way more about history than I do. Anyway, it ended in what was called the Treaty of Paris in 1763. One of the spoils of war for Great Britain was taking over Canada. Canada had a small population of French settlers called the Acadians. They refused to swear allegiance to the British crown and instead moved all the way to French-ish Louisiana where they brought their one-pot cooking style with them and then encountered a whole host of new ingredients like alligator, crawfish, and shrimp. Do you know how much you have to hate the British to go 2,200 miles from Nova Scotia to New Orleans? There were no roads. Only French people would be like, British food is so awful. I will risk malaria and attacks from the natives, but I will never eat bangles and mash. At the time, Louisiana was already a melting pot of cultures that included Spanish, Native American, and West African influences, which is why dishes like gumbo and jambalaya have such a hodgepodge of ingredients and how the Acadians used their new environment to create one of the world's most savory cuisines. Also, the word Cajun is derived over time from the word Acadian, which if you try hard enough, you can kind of make that work in your head. Acadian, Cajun, yeah, close enough. Last but not least in our culinary appropriation tour through history, we come to the Ottoman Empire. One of the great culinary treats of the empire is shawarma, which comes from the Turkish word sevirme, which means turning. Anyone who's ever enjoyed juicy pieces of lamb being sliced off the spit knows how incredible it is. I, on the other hand, usually have shawarma when I'm wasted and don't remember how they taste, but they must be great because I keep coming back for more. And this leads us to one of the all-time great fusions in world history, the Al Pastor Taco. Fans of Al Pastor understand that a turning spit of juicy pork is sliced into tacos, and it's one of the best street food treats in Mexico. But when you take a moment to think about it, you'll quickly realize the similarities between shawarma and al pastor. The path from shawarma to al pastor starts in Lebanon in the 19th century, when it was part of the Ottoman Empire, and ends in Mexico through waves of immigration. Following the collapse of the Ottoman Empire after World War I, Lebanese immigrants came in droves to Mexico. The Lebanese immigrants' first food imprint was known as Tacos Arabes in the 1930s. This was a pork-based version of the lamb shawarma back in Lebanon, and as many of the Lebanese were Christians, they had no restrictions on eating pork. Also, there wasn't a huge appetite for lamb among the Mexican population, so merchants switched to pork for business reasons. Slowly, the traditional pitas also changed over time as the immigrant children started opening their own restaurants and putting their own fusion spins on the dish. That's where corn tortillas come in, along with the additions like chilies, pineapple, onion, and cilantro. What started as a lamb shawarma ended as a Mexican al pastor, and the world is a better place for having both. If only I could remember what either of them tastes like. How about we do a quick bonus round of foods around the world with unlikely origins? Swedish meatballs are actually Turkish. Chicken tikka masala was first made in Scotland. Vindaloo was created in Portugal. The California roll was invented in Vancouver. Donuts are Greek. Mongolian barbecue is from Taiwan. French fries are Belgian. Worcestershire sauce was invented in Bengal. Paella is North African. Fish and chips come from Sephardic Jews in Portugal brought to the UK. Ice cream is Persian, Iran, number one. Scotch eggs are from India. Look, there's a fine line between appropriation, fusion, theft, and colonization. But at this point, does it really matter who's doing or who did the appropriating? I don't know if I can answer that question. But I can tell you it feels weird to me when a Twitter mob dunks on a white female chef cooking Korean food because that's a bridge too far. Really? That's the hill you're going to die on? Because a lot of people actually died on hills to get the food we eat to where it is today. It wasn't always pretty. But without cross-pollinating food, the world would be a very bland place. 
So let's all take a deep breath, be nice to each other, and eat without thinking too hard. The only thing that should offend you is bad tasting food, not the color of the person cooking it. Cultural mingling is a great thing. Although, I could do without the fortune cookie getting jacked from interned Japanese prisoners. That's pretty messed up. In bed. <laughs> you get it? Guys, it's fortune cookie humor. Keep up. This episode of Green Eggs and Dan History Bites was produced and edited by Jordan Aaron. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. This episode was co-written by myself and my partner in food crime, the Paul Feinstein. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's really important to us, guys. Please do it. If you want more Green Eggs and Dan action, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at StandUpDan. Also, we have a YouTube page where you can actually see me and my guests going through their fridges. Just type Green Eggs and Dan into YouTube, like and subscribe. I promise you will enjoy it. The Podglomer. A sonic universe. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.